you have a window of reconnecting people to nature as they begin to see it recover. So we do a lot of work in the Colorado River Delta. The Colorado River uh, stopped flowing to the sea for decades. And as we, the Sonoran Institute, plus other partners, work to reconnect that river, we found communities coming out and celebrating that there's a river here that their parents had told them about, but they had never seen. It didn't exist. It was a, a notional idea that my grandmother told me about, but I've never seen it. Well, when it flowed, they were out there celebrating the flows. You've tuned in to How It Looks From Here, life in the time of climate change. Here in the mashup of reality and uncertainty, life looks different to you than it does to me. The way race and gender, education and work, and everyday circumstances combine in any person's experience, well, it's different. For every person, How It Looks matters. So we offer these interviews as ways of giving us all new ideas and inspiration for making our way forward together. My name's Mary Claire. Today I've had the chance to meet up with Michael Zellner, a career journalist and business owner, a leader in local and international community-based conservation, and an all-around agent of positive change. Since October of 2020, Mike has served as Chief Executive Officer for the Arizona-based Sonoran Institute. Mike has 30 years of experience building award-winning collaborations for global organizations, including Nature Conservancy, Dow Jones and & Company, and Euromoney. As a business journalist in Mexico and the Americas, Mike played a leading role in the launch of the editorial operations of America Economía, a Dow Jones & Company publication in Mexico City, Sao Paulo, and Miami. He also served as editor-in-chief and owner of the Miami-based business magazine, Latin Trade. In our conversation, you'll hear Mike speak of the power of community-based conservation and share perspectives from across his career. Hello, Mike. It's so great to see you. Thank you for joining me on How It Looks From Here. Great to see you, Mary. It's really great to be with you, and thank you for including me in the Full Ecology podcast. Oh, it's such a, it's just great. I mean, I, I'm delighted to have gotten to meet you, and I'm really thrilled that our listeners are going to be having a chance to hear what you've been doing in your work. Um, I would like to ask the first question that I often ask of guests, which is because the name of this podcast is How It Looks From Here, Life in the Time of Climate Change. Um, what would you say today? How does it look to you today, particularly in the context of climate degradation and repair efforts, but in general, how does it look to you today? Mary, you know, it's really interesting that you ask me that because we are headed down a road. And this road, you know, if you talk to people who are scientists and know, um, they will tell you that this road had started 20, 25 years ago. In terms of they were saying 20, 25 years ago, look out. We're headed down a difficult road. And 
I think most people at the time kind of went, yeah, 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 yeah. The sky is falling too. Now, we're in the middle of it. It started to happen already. And we're living, um, you know, some people say it's a temporary condition. And other people say, and I think it's closer to this, that we are now living a new reality. It's adapted. It's moved. So when you talk about we're in a 20-year drought in the Colorado River community, is it really a drought? Or are we moving into a new era of less precipitation or perhaps more extreme precipitation, higher temperatures, things like this that you've got to start changing how you're behaving because this is no longer a, oh, it'll go away because we have this, that, or the other phenomena happening. We've moved into a new era. I could not tell you, Mary, whether this is scientifically a world cycle and this has happened in the past and we've been here before. I, I can't mm-hmm. tell you. All I can say is clearly what we've been doing is generating outcomes that are things that we need to deal with now. We need to start reacting to those outcomes because, unfortunately, it does not seem like our behaviors are going to change in such a significant way to change the trajectory of where we're headed. I don't know if that makes sense, but you see the Paris Club Accords and these other Accords, the important global agreements, and you can see we really aren't going to meet those goals, mm-hmm, I don't mm-hmm, think. Mm-hmm. There's this thing in... Um linguistic theory, that we have two, well, many different, but two primary ways of organizing our linguistic systems. Mm-hmm. And one of them is high context, and one of them is low context. And dominant groups tend to be more low context, meaning they say things like, my word is my deed, but then they may do something else entirely. And this mm-hmm. is why the criticism comes, walk your talk. High context are really much less interested in the words and a lot more interested in the outcomes. I know that you've worked in both kinds of cultures. And it seems that when you bring up the Paris Accords, that would be a kind of low context thing for many people, or for certainly the dominant mm-hmm. nations. That, that there it is on paper, so we've mm-hmm. done something, but not really. How, how do you see that in your work with communities to do community repair and community response? Are people able to walk their talk? Yeah, well, I think a lot of the work with communities, what's fascinating is a lot of people become detached to nature. So if they're in an urban context, it's very much so because what would be, say, here where we live in Tucson and the Santa Cruz River doesn't flow year-round anymore. So it's very easy to think, well, that's not really a river. That's just kind of this dry patch that goes underneath bridges all across town. And so you get a disconnect there, and people, as they disconnect, lose more than just a connection to nature. They lose part of a defining aspect of where you live. And so with the urban community, it's more pronounced. Even with the rural communities, though, nature being something that's uh, meant to be uh, productive for a lot of people. You know, uh, in Chile, for example, there's a high, uh, there's a, a large importance put on, can we make this land productive? Can we plant trees, eucalyptus trees, and right, harvest them right. so we can make money? Uh, can we dig dirt and pull out rocks that are copper or whatever? Can we do something with yeah. this ground so that it makes money? And if you're working in a farming context, you have a little bit more relationship with nature because you're aware of 
rainfall, heat, you know, things of this sort. But if you're not really that tied to it, then you have a bigger mountain to climb. What we have found, though, is that you have a window of reconnecting people to nature as they begin to see it recover. So we do a lot of work in the Colorado River Delta. The Colorado River uh, stopped flowing to the sea for decades. And as we, the Sonoran Institute, plus other partners work to reconnect that river, we found communities coming out and celebrating that there's a river here that their parents had told them about, but they had never seen. It didn't exist. It was a, a notional idea that my grandmother told me about, but I've never seen it. Well, when it flowed, they were out there celebrating the flows. And so from there, you can build in, can we plant trees? Can we recover the, uh, the dynamics that were going on in the ecosystem to bring that uh, space back? And as you do that, other things happen. Uh, nature kind of kicks in and right. says, you know, the otters will reappear. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, the beavers will reappear that didn't exist there. We don't know where they came from, but they came back. You get more than 250 species of birds. But more importantly, people find this connection that they had lost. That, you know, what had been just scrubland and just wasteland has now become something they're proud of, that they treasure, they value, they contribute to, and they take part in. And these aren't people um, with lots of resources and things of that sort, but they are very much uh, astute people in terms of understanding the dynamics of what they've helped create and what it means and how they value it. And they go as far as learning all the birds' names. They go as far as, you know, I mean, they, you know, this is something like, I can learn from this a lot and they cherish that. And when you start getting that going again, then you begin to get other collateral things that happen that are really wonderful. This is the thing that I'm really interested in, in the work of the Sonoran Institute and the things that I've seen that you've said. Um, I think one of the themes here recently was we are one. And of course, as a social scientist, I'm very interested in when it works. And you are saying that when people have the opportunity mm -hmm. to connect the dots between what they do, for example, in some of the cleaning of the riverbed, am I, that, that you and the Institute mm -hmm. have yep. supported, when people do that and then the water comes back, there's something powerful that happens in their understanding or that they get to recover. How would you describe that further? Well, you begin to get a, an amenity back that you didn't know you had. And you begin to get converts to stewarding the value of these things. Because you see, as an institution, and even as much as energy we can rally around a cause, the long-term value, the long-term stewardship of these places yes. lies within the community. So it's not as though I can come in and say to you, Mary, you should value this in mm -hmm, your community. Mm -hmm. This is important. I can talk to him blue in the face. If you don't believe, if you don't feel it, it doesn't internalize for you, I will go away and you'll forget it and it'll be there for another day for somebody else to do. Whereas if we do this together, we get it going together with the communities and they say, look, at no, what we want is this, that, or the other. We're doing work in Mexicali, uh, rebuilding uh, uh, natural rivers in terms of the new river there. And it's been treated more or less like a garbage can. And as we clean it out with the community's help, they do some amazing things. One, they formed a chat group online 
so that they would post, I watered my tree, social pressure oh, to the other people in the community. Uh-huh. Did you water your tree? Have you gotten yours? Right? And so that's really exciting. But then the other thing they'll do is they say, hey, you know, we want green spaces. We want a soccer field. And you know what? They keep the soccer field clean because it is important every Sunday that they have the game on uh-huh. Sunday and they go out. So this is like, you know, you're getting into something whereby they're putting on their values to this, they're supporting it, and they are finding ways to get the community to work together to keep it alive. And so when that cycle gets going, it gets really exciting because I've seen it in numerous countries and it's perhaps the most powerful element of trying to do something around a community with regard to conservation. Well, let's let's explore a little bit of your other areas of expertise and how they, they mm-hmm. fit in with this, which seems, if I might conjecture, that you have some optimism about this particular set of phenomena that is possible to help happen with people and in communities. And so I'm curious what you have to say from your background in business. Mm-hmm. How it is that you see, I imagine that business is very practical, but what is it that you've seen in business that complements what you're describing here with the community change? So with the, commu- the business cross with commerce and conservation and community, what you see is we all have to get included in this. And what I mean by inclusion is um, if we generate a solution with only a select group, it usually isn't sustainable because the other groups that aren't part of it won't support it. And if you think about business, oftentimes in business, you're trying to sell a service or a good to as many people as possible. And you kind of have to build in the values of these folks in that to get them to uh, buy your product or perhaps even more transcendental if they lend some sort of meaning to your product. You know, I mean, in a crassest sense, Coke is the real thing. Mm. It's completely marketing, it's sugar water mm-hmm. buzz. If you take that towards something that is oriented towards a social good, then you wanna get a deeper value out mm-hmm. of it. You wanna get across the people that you're, by your taking part in this, not just by giving money, giving perhaps the single most important thing that you have, which is your time, you're going to receive something you value. If you're not getting there with that, then a lot of times it has to do with either you're not listening, and I shouldn't say you, me, I'm not listening, I'm talking to you, but you're not hearing me because either the way I'm talking Mm -hmm. or what I'm doing or who I am, Mm -hmm. I'm not connecting. And so therefore it becomes much more difficult to get to what you hope is a positive outcome because from the start, you're talking at cross purposes. Mm-hmm. You're not communicating adequately with people where they are, meeting them where they are, hearing what they have to say. You're not valuing what they have to say. And perhaps you're not even being as, um, uh, you're not being as thorough and careful about what you're promising. Say more about because, that. Well, because like, you know, when we were doing work in, um, in Chile, when I was working in Chile for another organization, we had a 150,000 acre plot that we had purchased from a bankrupt 
timber company. We go into the community and their first question is, uh, a non-for-profit organization, what do you guys do for work? Mm. Because they were planning on working on the timber company and chopping down trees or do whatever the timber guys needed. And so we were like, um, um, uh, right. tour guides? Yeah. <laughs> Right. So you go from that starting point and you start to invest with the community. You start to build trust. And over time, we decided that we were going to pull out the eucalyptus trees that had been planted by the company prior to sell them so that we could fund more conservation work. Interesting. Imagine our surprise with the first truckloads we take out. This community gets up in arms and starts protesting like, what are you doing? You're taking out trees. You're kicking up dust in the middle of town. And we have tourists who come to see the trees. Wow. And so now you're in a really interesting position because you took people who were doubtful, did not believe in conservation, who now believe you set expectations for them and they went down that road. And now you're doing something that is contrary to what, you know, they think should be done. Right. And so you raise these expectations of who you're going to be, what you're going to do, and how you're going to behave, and you don't comply. And so it's not something that communities are ignorant of. You have politicians who come all the time and promise things sure. and never deliver. Right. But, but if you're trying to affect social change, you have to, to the best of your ability, be consistent. You have to try to make that what you say is what you do is how you behave as clean as possible. So we're, and that's what I mean by expectations. We're back to high context, that people are watching more what you do, what the, what the nonprofit in this case does, than what it says. And that's, right. that's the context is everything, rather than if yep. you say it, then it's true. Nope, nope, we don't buy that. And so mm -mm. what did you do? What did you do to win them back in Chile? Were you able to? Yes, you sit down, you talk to them, you find out what's the story, what are they worried about. They're worried about the kids going, um, uh, getting hit coming home from school by the big trucks. They were worried about the dust, so you can spray down the roads. You can explain to them what you're doing. We take the fishermen up the hill to see eucalyptus when you chop eucalyptus. If you don't treat it properly, it comes back. Uh -huh. And so the, the, what you need to do is you need to put poison there. You can imagine if we're putting poison up the hill and these guys are collecting shellfish down the road and there's a Thank lack you. of shellfish, they're going to look up and what those guys did killed all the shellfish. Right. So you have to bring people in, include them in the process and work through. It takes a little bit longer, but over time, again, if you have a basic trust built in, they say, ah, I see what you're doing. I get it. Okay. So, and so that's how you, you manage it and you keep on top of it. But as I say, it's, a, it's, a, it's like a, uh, you know, something you need to feed every day. It's not like show up every six months and go, oh, yeah, we're going to do this, and then don't do it. Right, right, right. This is Mary Claire and How It Looks From Here. Stay with us. We'll be back after this brief break. So, so you're talking about this, this fundamental, um, I would say your fundamental approach is to slow down enough to listen. 
to what it is that people hold precious and what it is that they see as their goals. But then you're listening to the people who are recruited and willing to volunteer in the river uh, basin, and, mm -hmm. and, and you're also listening to business interests or corporate concerns. And you're also listening, I would guess, to healthcare. And, and you were talking about the Fisher people. and mm -hmm. Right. And so that's the way that you start. It also sounds like that I would speculate because of socialization. Mm -hmm. It's easy to get going really fast and forget to listen. Mm -hmm. And so then you have yeah. to go back. That's what you were just describing. You have to go back and listen again. Yeah, well, you just sometimes you're not aware or you didn't think it was going to be an issue. And it is an issue. So you have to stop and attend to the issue before you move on. Because a lot of times you can ride roughshod over concerns, but they will come back. Yeah, kind of like eucalyptus. You, you, you may get away with it now, but six, 12 months, they're going to throw it in your face. Say, well, I remember when yeah. you did this and you didn't tell me, you didn't call me, you didn't talk to me. You just went ahead and did it. And as you can imagine... If you're in an urban context, time is completely different in an urban context than it is in a rural context. Say more about that. That's I think that is yes. What, how do you well? See I mean, that? you know, if you've ever lived in a big city mm -hmm. and you take that jaunt outside of the big city, you go on a road trip, and you know, you get to the suburbs, those people are still okay. Then you get like an hour or two hours out, and you stop into say a gas station or a country store. Like, I need this, and they look at you like, "Whoa, <laughs> you are really hyped up. You're ready to go, right?" Um, good afternoon. <laughs> right. I mean, let's start with the basics here. Um, what can I do for you? Uh, rather than, ah, yes. you know, jumping in at them because it's, uh, you know, you get used to just moving and doing things quickly and. You know, I mean, I think that was one of the big parts, you know, in my personal experience, working in, say, Mexico, as opposed to the United States. Mm -hmm. There is a, not in all of Mexico, but a lot of Mexico, there is a definite sort of dance that you have to do before you get to what you want to do. And so, you know, you say, hi, how are you? And you say, hi, fine, how are you? And you listen. For the answer and then you ask back and then you say oh you know if it's not too much trouble i'd like to do this and so you're going through this repartee and you're doing it in spanish and you think wow this is a lot of work if you go down south in the united states it's the same that's thing. right right that's and so right. this is where you kind of go okay i know i'm in another country but there are similarities in context that you have to begin to listen for and slow down and pay attention to that can help you as tools for uh, learning a little bit better how to get better received, how to that first impression can go a little bit better. doesn't mean you're going to be loved, but it may help you in terms of getting a chance to be heard. Well, you know, this is curious to me, knowing about you, that uh, your early career focus, as far as I can tell, was in journalism, that you were drawn mm -hmm. to journalism. And it seems to me that it's impossible to be um, become adept as a journalist if you're not listening, that that is a skill that you must have. And so would, what would you say about journalism and how it taught you to, to listen to people? It's really funny about journalism because, yes, as a profession, 
I have to learn to ask you questions, listen to your answers, pay attention, what have you. But generally, if you talk to journalists, they talk about themselves a lot. Mm. Ah. <laughs> right? And so this is kind of a dynamic that's funny because they're professional listeners. You're right. You have to be able to listen. If you can't get the story, you can't hear what they have to say. It doesn't work. But by the same token, there's this need to be the center of attention, express, I need everybody to look at me. They can work in your, against you. And so I think, you know, throughout when I was working as a journalist, I learned to listen. When I worked as a conservation person, I began to learn to collaborate uh -huh. in terms of, you know, you have this great idea. You're going to it's almost like, you know, you're going to do a party or whatever, but you have to get other people to show up. Sure. And to do that, you have to kind of get people all rallied around your idea or the idea and to do it together rather than let me tell you something else, Mary. And I think this and I do this and I, you know, have I told you about myself lately? And it's just like, oh, come on. <laughs> Right? right? You're supposed to be a journalist. You're supposed to listen. Right. And you're just blah, 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 Yeah, blah, blah. well, and so. I would wonder if to an extent that's because journalists listen so much that when they have a chance to be listened to, it's like they can't stop. But I, I think we're overgeneralizing here. But I, I am curious about, you know, what you see as the role that journalism can take for what I may, let's call it fortifying climate sanity. You know, what what. And, and in addition to that, what avenues do journalists have in contemporary media landscape? But those are two different questions. What, what can journalism do to help with climate sanity? So climate, it's really interesting because um, climate change has been a really crappy story for journalism to cover. It's one of these slow-moving stories that doesn't have dramatic moments in terms of the temperature doesn't go one point two degrees up one year to the next. You come out with studies that say, oh, the last 20 years this has happened. You may have an extreme weather event, but it's not, um, it's a developing story. Yeah. And yeah. so as a journalist, that's always a hard story to cover because it's happening over time. It's not like now, then. Okay. And so that's one of the challenges journalists have. The obviously one of the optics and the many of the journalists use this, they're smart people, is to go down on the ground and look up. So you go way down and you see how somebody's life has changed or a region's life has changed over the space of time. And that will get your heartstrings because you get people talking about people and what their experience has been. Um, the disaster stories, because in general, you know, at least in Latin America, the big stories are there's five D's they cover. They cover debt, drugs, dictators or democracy, if you will. They ch cover um, development to some extent, and then they'll cover disappeared journalists and tourists. And that's about what you get out of international coverage in the United States when you look at the newspaper. There's variances there, but if you go to an editor and you're trying to sell them a story, that's what you're going to get. So how do you mm -hmm. get into the flow of something like, no, this is an important story you need to cover? If it's from the disaster perspective, you know, right now we're having mm -hmm. atmospheric rivers in California. Right. It's, a, it's definitely something that catches your attention to see water, you know, a year's worth of rain coming down on Los Angeles in two days. That's pretty dramatic. Yeah, it is. And so that's how journalists survive. But is there 
anything that you see that journalists have done or can do to use their pulpit, so to speak, to assist people with knowing how to be and what, you know, in the way that you describe the community initiatives that, that change people's attention. Is that too ambitious or what do you think as a journalist? Uh, I don't know. As a journalist, you know, you, you want to be part of a community and you take part in a community. So certainly uh, when you see community-based conservation, you can accompany the process. And there's a lot of uh, gratification, both in terms of um, the story itself and how you feel as a human being covering something that has meaning. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a little more difficult to pin down permanent change. Right. And um, oftentimes, uh, you know, you are thrust into this role of good guys and bad guys. As a journalist. And that is a tricky role because you're going to make some calls in terms of, you know, the mining company that spilled mm -hmm. evil stuff all over us. And they should get crucified if they're not careful. But the same token is when they try to do the right thing, can you applaud them without saying sounding almost naive? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we're you know it's treacherous because you're not um, you're not going to be on one side of the issue always. You're going to be going back and forth. Right. Uh, it's not a clean story. I mm -hmm. think it has a lot to do. The friends of mine who've covered environmental issues for many, 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 many years. Um, are centered in their beliefs and how what they believe needs to be focused on. That's probably the best you can hope for in terms of reporting, giving people the useful information so that they can understand the situations and how they can take uh, action. Um, but it's not really, what do they call it when you do the journalism that's like sort of action, activist journalism. Mm. The activist journalism you can do, but it, kind of winds up undermining your ability to report. Mm -hmm. Right. Because now you're showing your colors, which is fine. It's more editorial. Right. You're mm -hmm. definitely out there supporting the cause, mm -hmm. which, you know, from a NGO point of view, great. Right. Right. <laughs> but for sure. From a journalistic point, it's not quite as yeah. easy as all that. So um, it's interesting. It really is because I think it's been a difficult story for journalists to cover. Because, as I say, it's episodic. It's not, it's not now, then. It's not, it's happening. I'm thinking back to the, the We Are One slogan that you and your colleagues came mm -hmm. up with. And so it's occurring to me that, that part of what has gotten us in this mess is what has of late been referred to as siloing. Mm-hmm. So that journalists just do journalism and historians just do history and nonprofits just do <laughs> nonprofit, whatever mm -hmm. the heck that means to say that, you know, but and, and health care and education and mm -hmm. so on and so forth. Um, and then politics. And and the fact of the matter is, from your very first example of what you all were helping happen in the river valley or in the river bed, mm -hmm. um, it, it takes a lot of different folks coming together and different disciplines coming to bear in more subtle and more overt ways. And so journalism can do its part to say, okay, this appears to be what the facts are. Mm -hmm. But then there has to be ways of translating that 
and having that have effect on people. Or maybe it's the journalists who cover what you and your team and your, your community members do. I mean, it's, it's, you know, we always welcome journalist coverage. We collaborate a lot with journalists, but I, as having been a journalist, clearly see the quandary for them in terms of they want to be pro a cause, but they have to maintain some form of objectivity. What's interesting today, Mary, is everybody can be a journalist. With the social media, the influencers, all that, and in some cases, it can even be people who aren't journalists. There's a tour guide on the Colorado River, a young woman who's got her elevator pitch down on what's going on with the Colorado River because she's got to tell it before the next rapid. <laughs> like when people ask her, well, what is the water going down in the Colorado? She's like, bang, 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 and she's done. And then they're down to the next rapids and all that. They have to pay attention to what's going on. So you have these uh -huh. people online who are creating a universe of information, some accurate, some inaccurate, but it's part of this discussion that we're into now. Uh -huh. And I think that's very rich that you have people who are stepping up and you can see how even, you know, you go off to Chile and you post pictures and you can make a commentary and you're influencing your group. Right. And that also allows the community, as I say, the example of the trees, the communities to take advantage of that to say, to their community what's going on. I planted my tree, I watered my tree. Thank you very mm -hmm. much. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? And so you can yeah. begin to create a dynamic where you've got information flowing from citizen journalists almost, which is exciting. It is exciting, and it also bridges into the work that I know you've done and what we're contemporarily calling diversity, equity, and inclusion. You know, so the, so this is about the world looks different. And that's one of the things that we say and how it looks from here, that the whole reason we're doing this is because the world looks different to you than it does to me. And for a number of reasons. And so I would love to hear you talk based on, you know, give any mm -hmm. examples that come to mind. But from that kind of work, what you're doing in action in Mexicali, mm -hmm. in Chile, in the riverbed, you're doing it. Um, what does that, has that told you about this relationship between social justice and environmental justice? So, you know, you have a high correlation between people who have the least amount of resources and the ones that are going to be most impacted by the changes going on. As far as uh, um, the, the whole idea that if you look at the communities that are struggling with some of the flooding, you look at the communities that are struggling with the fires, a lot of those are marginalized communities. And so when you think about generating solutions for the entire Colorado River community, 40 million people, you can kind of say, okay, I'm going to need to find a way into this community if we're going to, it's going to be for everybody. And those are the, some of the challenges that you start to work through. And diversity, equity, and inclusion takes on importance because you have to learn different perspectives. You have to learn um, what equity means for these people. Mm-hmm and how to be inclusive in what you're talking about. Because, look, you start from this basic indicator of probably 80% of the people live in urban areas. And those urban areas are going to force you usually into the poorer sides of town in terms of what's going on. Mm 
Mm -hmm. If you look at, you have more than 30 tribal nations in the Colorado River community who have traditionally not received their water rights. They have rights to maybe a quarter or a, a fifth of all the water rights in the Colorado River Basin that haven't been respected. So you're... You're into this discussion that you say you want to do things about water in the Colorado River community. Is everybody going to be included in this discussion or uh -huh. is it just going to be the same people as always? And so that's where you need to get on to be effective because it's really about generating the impacts that you'd like to see in terms of the, the sh changes. And if you don't, you aren't able to, it's hard. Um, at the Sonoran Institute, we have probably about 55 employees, 40 of which are Mexican. So you're in a bi-national, bi-cultural uh, um, organization. And are we internally even having the discussions, are people being heard? Are we speaking in Spanish? Are we speaking in English? How are we communicating? And then you think about, well, women, probably 50% of our staff are women. Are we being inclusive in gender perspectives and thinking about that? Mm -hmm. um, add on, just keep on adding on layers just internally what you have to do. And then mm -hmm. externally as you reach out, when you say you're an inclusive organization, when they look at you as, you don't have anybody from a tribal nation on your team. Are you really inclusive? Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is an ongoing work, but it's not just to represent, but it's to gain access to those perspectives, and that's where you win. In terms of as you begin to be able to shift and move and hear and adapt to what the different perspectives are, you can become more relevant. And becoming relevant, and I hate to repeat myself, but when you talk about community-based conservation, being relevant to these communities is key to getting them engaged and so that they will take part and feel like ownership and all of this if you can't do that, then you have to go back and try again. <laughs> That's where it goes. Absolutely. That's right. Well, you know, I'm curious. You know, we've got this group of people who are listening to this podcast. And I'm wondering what you, Mike, mm -hmm. would leave with these listeners as, like, advice or a suggestion for how to live in these times that you described early on as just qualitatively different. Okay. Uh, first off, thank you for inviting me to be part of this part podcast. It's really uh, a privilege to get a chance to talk with you and learn about your ideas and, and hear what other people are thinking. I think at the end of the day, what people should take away is do what you can do. Get involved. So, you know, I'm not a religious person, but there are religious people who go to church every Sunday. More power to them. If nature's important to you, maybe you go take a walk every Sunday. If that's the level of participation, that's fine. But you participate. And find ways for you to get yourself involved in this activity of conserving what we have and enjoying what we have because we only have one planet. We're not going to get another one, although some people want to start over again on Mars or, you yeah. know, whatever. But <laughs> this is it, right? And yeah. so... That is, if I had to say one thing, take part. Whatever it is, whatever you feel comfortable, at the level you feel comfortable, go to th events, whatever it is, however you enjoy this, take part because showing up is 
more than 90% of the effort. Just showing up and being present. And so as you do that, you will find your way in terms of what's most important to you, what you feel is valuable in terms of investing your time. And that's the single best investment we can hope for, that you will give time. So I really do appreciate you giving some time to uh, talk about the Sonoran Institute because it is the single most valuable thing we have, and I appreciate the interest and the time from this podcast to do that. So thank you. And well, it is my joy, of course, and it's just a delight to have you and your expertise. Thank you for sharing that, Mike. I really appreciate it, and I think we've only scratched the surface. Yes, um, I'm sure we'll but, talk some more. <laughs> yes, I'm sure we will. You can learn more about Mike Zellner by visiting the Sonoran Institute website. On that same site, you can also take a look at the inspiring and informative blogs he's written over his years as Chief Executive Officer. You can find links to both of these in the show notes. And while you're at it, look around your community for how you too can become involved in community-based conservation initiatives. It's good for the land. It's good for your neighbors. It's good for you. And finally, it's good for all beings. During our conversation, we referred to ideas from the book Full Ecology, Repairing Our Relationship with the Natural World, authored by me and Gary Ferguson and available in bookstores everywhere. And now before we go, a quick pitch for our podcast. If you like what you're hearing on How It Looks From Here, make sure to subscribe. Let's get these perspectives out there. Tell your friends and family. Share the link right now with someone you know would enjoy learning how it looks from another viewpoint. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. How It Looks From Here is an educational project of full ecology. How It Looks From Here is produced by me, Mary Claire, editing by Gary Ferguson, music by Gary Ferguson, and other artists noted in the show notes. Find us on Instagram at Full Ecology and at www.fullecology.com. Keep listening and be in touch.
You can learn more about Mike Zellner by visiting the Sonoran Institute website. On that same site, you can also take a look at the inspiring and informative blogs he's written over his years as Chief Executive Officer. You can find links to both of these in the show notes. And while you're at it, look around your community for how you too can become involved in community-based conservation initiatives. It's good for the land. It's good for your neighbors. It's good for you. And finally, it's good for all beings. During our conversation, we referred to ideas from the book Full Ecology, Repairing Our Relationship with the Natural World, authored by me and Gary Ferguson and available in bookstores everywhere. And now before we go, a quick pitch for our podcast. If you like what you're hearing on How It Looks From Here, make sure to subscribe. Let's get these perspectives out there. Tell your friends and family. Share the link right now with someone you know would enjoy learning how it looks from another viewpoint. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. How It Looks From Here is an educational project of full ecology. How It Looks From Here is produced by me, Mary Claire, editing by Gary Ferguson, music by Gary Ferguson, and other artists noted in the show notes. Find us on Instagram at Full Ecology and at www.fullecology.com. Keep listening and be in touch.